Today we're talking about the the value of baptism. You know, there's a lot of things in Christianity that Christians among themselves want to argue and pick at. And, you know, when it comes to the process of salvation, there's probably nothing more polarizing than the place of baptism. We argue over its form. Should we sprinkle? Should we pour? Should it be by a plunging, an immersion? We argue over its efficacy. Uh, Is it a rite of passage or is it something more than that? And we argue about when it ought to be done. Uh, Do we baptize infants? Or how does a child know exactly what's going on, what that time frame is? Um, Adults and who can be baptized? Uh, I'm bringing this up today because you will have conversations about this. And today, I want you to decide right now that when you do get in those conversations about baptism, what is your goal? Is your goal to simply be right or is your goal to have people to come to a point where they will do the right thing? Do you want to win an argument or do you want to win a soul for Christ? I'm going to say right up front, That if we want the right response, we have to give people the respect to make up their own mind. It's long been known in education that adults learn best what they learn for themselves. So, I am not here trying to get you to win an argument. That is not the point of this. If you get that in your mind and you think I'm feeding your shotgun... You got the wrong attitude to start with. That's not the point, okay? We have to earn the right to be heard. This idea of respect, respect can be given, but most of the time it is earned. And one way we earn it is by giving the other person the respect to make up their own mind. But to be able to do that, we would like for people to be well-informed. So what we're doing is going to just give people information and let them work through it. They come back with questions, that's good. But give people the respect to make up their own mind. Because after all, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Amen? Our job is just to tell people what we know, what we have experienced what we have learned. I have found that it is easier to explain than it is to argue. And when we're asked about our practice, when I'm asked about our practice, like why do we do communion every week or why do we baptize by immersion, those kinds of things, when they come up, what I say is, Well, we're trying to be as much like the first century church as we can be within our cultural setting. We are trying to be like that first church, that first gathering of Christ's people. And the things that they did that we can still do, we 
try to pattern ourselves after the New Testament. So this morning, I've got two objectives. One is maybe you'll learn something new or at least be reminded of something that you have heard before. And I want to equip you, number two, to teach, not to argue, not to justify. So let's start with a little bit of history. Um, Baptism did not begin with Christ. It did not begin with John the Baptist. In fact, almost all ancient religions have some form of ritual washings. You can go back and look at the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, uh, the other Mesopotamian religions that are there, and you will find out that baptism, ritual washings, are part of their religion. And baptism was practiced by the Jews before the time of Christ. Now, you might say, or somebody might ask, when did that start? I got three words for you. Do you know what they are? I don't know. Absolutely. However, I can tell you it predates Christ by at least 100 years and maybe more than that. But with the Jews, what we have is a proselyte baptism. Okay, we don't use that word much anymore, proselyte, right? That is somebody who is, in this case, not a Jew, who wants to become a Jew, so they want to do whatever is necessary to become a Jew. That learner, who is a, who is a non-Jew, a Gentile, is a proselyte while they're learning, and then they come into Judaism if they follow the process. There are four things that were prescribed for a proselyte to become a Jew. First off, they had to study Torah. We know Torah. Torah is also called the Pentateuch, the five books. It's what? It's the books of books of Moses, right? Yes, the books of Moses. They had to study the books of Moses. This one you guys know. He had to undergo circumcision, not for women, but for men. Had to undergo circumcision. What is that? What does that date back to? That dates to coming under the covenant that God made with Abraham. Yes? It's the sign of the covenant. Also, they had to be baptized. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And probably the hardest one is they had to sacrifice in the temple. Now, if you think about it, That was never a requirement on a Jew. Now, Jews want to go to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice, always did. But if somebody was a Gentile in Asia Minor or over in Greece or in Italy over towards Rome, they could not be considered to be a Jew until they made the trip to Jerusalem and sacrificed at temple. It was an absolute requirement to do that. Now, where we hear a lot of the information about baptism, Jewish baptism, is uh, in the Mishnah, the, the writings of the rabbis and some of the arguments that they had, and specifically two um, rabbis that are of the same time of Jesus. One is Halil and the other is Shammai. And uh, Halil was the old man. He was the 
one that Shammai was his uh, pupil, was his disciple. And uh, Shammai uh, formed up a, a group and they would go back and forth on a lot of different subjects. And uh, by the time of Christ, Halil's probably around 70, something like that. So these arguments were happening really before Jesus was even born. Um, and when it, one of those arguments that they got into was when does a proselyte become a Jew? And what they started centering on was, was it circumcision or was it when they were baptized? There was a ritual in the Mishnah as to what this baptism entailed. First, the one who was coming into Judaism had to cut their fingernails and cut their hair and completely undress. The baptismal bath had to contain at least two hogsheads of water. Anybody know what that is? Okay, let me make it easier for you. It's 40 sayas of water. Anybody? Okay. Um, Two different measurements, about the same thing. What we would say is around 200 gallons of water, preferably flowing like in a river. Okay. Does that make sense? If you're baptized and the water's flowing, what's that water doing? It's that idea of washing away, right? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. In fact, in in John 9, we see uh, Jesus coming, the the baptism that's there and the things that are going on. Um, By the way, this right here, this is Hezekiah's tunnel in the pool of Siloam. For a long, long time, this was uh, covered up. It was unearthed a few years ago. And this was a mikvah. In fact, this is where a lot of people think that um, Jesus healed the cripple by the pool. But this, you see the water comes in, the water comes out. It is one of those places for a public mikvah, for a public ceremonial washings. Now, in this process, this person who had cut their nails, cut their hair, they were unrobed, the 200 gallons of water, they had to, and it's written in the the Mishnah, they had to come into the water and every part of their body must be in contact with the water at the same time. How does that happen? It's an immersion, yes? While they were in the water, the candidate would make a confession of faith and the three fathers of baptism, three rabbis would be there to oversee. They would give certain uh, exhortations and benedictions that were addressed to that individual who was being baptized. Oh, and by the way, ladies, uh, ladies who came in, this was done in a ladies-only service. Um, Sometimes people ask that and I forget to mention it. But here's the thing. This Jewish proselyte baptism was seen to be a complete regeneration 
of that individual. Why? Because they were no longer Gentile, they were now a Jew. Now there's a lot of hyperbole about what that meant going back and forth. Uh, Halil was the one who was saying that uh, it was in the baptism, the older uh, priest, that it was in the baptism where somebody became a Jew. And the way he argument, argued it, he says, when someone is baptized and they come out of the water, we call them a babe of one day old. Regardless of their age, they come up out of that mikvah, come out of that baptism, and they're a brand new baby. Now, all sin is also remitted because how can God hold the sins of that Gentile who doesn't exist anymore against this babe of one day old? You cannot commit sin before you're born, can you? Now, let's say that person, that man, had children. Well, if he's a babe of one day old, any children that were born before that, Gentile. Any children born after that, Jew. A son born after that baptism was the firstborn and a Jew and under the law heir to the promise. Now, theoretically, theoretically, this was never practiced. This is hyperbole. But they saw this distance, this, this distinction to be so great that there were rabbis who said that man, after he was baptized, after he became a Jew, he could marry his mother or his sister because it was that profound of a difference. Never done, no record of it ever being done, never expected it to be done, but do you understand what they're saying? A different man. By the way, any debts that he owed were forgiven. By the same token, any debts owed to him were forgiven because that person was gone. This is a different person. He was not only a changed man, he was a different man. And this is the background for Romans 6. And we're going to get to that here in just a minute. Now, when we look at John, and when John came along, we see John is practicing or preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. They're on your sheet, right? A baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sin. This is reiterated by Paul around Acts 19.4. If you want to make a note of that, Acts 19.4. Now, there are some scholars who say that John modeled his baptism off of Jewish proselyte baptism. Some say that he modeled it over the Essenes of Qumran. Have you ever heard of the Essenes? 
Have you heard of the Qumran Scrolls? Okay, this is a group of ascetic priests, um, uh, Jews, that separated themselves from the city because they saw corruption and things and they wanted to be pure. And they were kind of an end-time eschatological group. And they had moved down into the desert south of Jerusalem in, in order to live an ascetic life, to be more pure Jew than, than what they saw going on. In those Qumran scrolls, it shows that they involved themselves in immersion. They immersed themselves daily as an act of ceremonial cleansing. Qumran scroll 1, 1 Qumran scroll, chapter 2, verse 3, states clearly that when it comes to this uh, ceremonial washing, that an internal repentance must accompany the external act for the baptism to be an effective cleansing. Interesting thought. Yes? What's different about John's baptism from the baptism of the Jews? The Jews were baptizing who? Gentiles, non-Jews. What's radical about John is John is baptizing Jews. Now, they have known about sin. They've known about collective. They've known about God as the father of the nation. But this is the first time in history that we see Jews on a wide scale acknowledging their personal need for the forgiveness of sin. Even today, many Jews feel like they are chosen. They're part of Abraham's seed. And they're chosen. Regardless of what they do, they're chosen. They don't see a need for a cross or for a savior. Proselytes, oh yes, absolutely. They need baptism, but not Jews. But what's different about Christian baptism about the baptism of Christ being baptized into him that's different from a Jewish baptism or from John's baptism. Well, as we've talked about already, Jewish baptism is a change of nationality. When you go from being a Gentile, not a Jew, to becoming a Jew. John's baptism was a baptism of the Jews for the forgiveness of sin, but there's no ultimate salvation that has been offered in John's baptism. And in Christian baptism, there is a fundamental change that is happening. There is a baptism of repentance and a baptism of forgiveness, but also there is the salvation that we're offered and the indwelling of God himself to be our guide, to be our teacher, our counselor, the one that admonishes and the one that encourages. So if you look at this, there seems to be a bit of a progression. Yes? Okay. 
It's been often said that there are two places in which we come in contact with the blood. One is in communion, and the other is in baptism. Both of them symbolic, but in some way more than just the symbol. Little word study. Two words I want you to know. Yes, I'm taking you back to school, but hold on a second. There won't be a test. You write it down, you'll have the answer, okay? There's two words. The first one is bapto. Bapto is a verb. It occurs three times in the New Testament, and it means to dip. It's a simple dipping. It is the root word, the root uh, verb, um, and it's like um, the idea of dying, like to dip in to die. The three places where it comes up, John 13, 26, Luke 16, 24, Revelation 19, 13, they're all listed there for you. We're going to set that aside for just a second, and we're going to come back to that. The second word is the word baptizo. The word baptizo is, occurs 80 times as a verb, oh, and about 120 times in a noun form. And it is an intensified form of the word bapto. It is to dip repeatedly, to immerse and to emerge. Now, oftentimes, we will shorten that, right? We'll use a little synecdoche. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about immersion, right? Well, baptism is actually immerse and emerge. It's both of those together. We just don't have a single word in English that really does it. That's why the word is transliterated. It is borrowed from the Greek. And we have the word baptism that is in our language. This word occurs many times in Greek literature. It is used for the sinking of a ship. What happens when a ship sinks? It goes under, right? It is used for the idea of to sink in mud. It is used with the connotation of drowning or to perish. You think about that. The Greeks have perfectly good words for sprinkle, uh, rontizo, for pouring, ekkeho. You don't have to write those down. But they are never used for Christian baptism. The only word that's used for Christian baptism is that intensified baptizo, which is an immersion and an emerging. Now, you can say, Eric, well, yeah, but you're arguing semantics, and I could say, yeah, 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 but, you know, words mean things, and the meaning of words is important. How can we communicate if we don't understand what words mean? Well, yeah, but, you know, sprinkling, pouring, they're similar. They are similar, but they're not the same. They simply aren't. If they were the same, we probably would have seen them used in the New Testament as a replacement for baptizo, and it's not done. 
I even went to my dad, my favorite Greek professor, and said to him one time in my youth that, um, you know, Dad, um, people in the heart are right when they do this and they, 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 they sprinkle and they pour and they have these traditions and, you know, sport, pouring, you have that idea of washing away too. And my dad listened to me and he said, you know, you can have a rite of passage by sprinkling or pouring, you just can't call it a baptism. I wasn't smart enough to argue with him, but I'm smart enough to listen to him. And you think about that, that plunging, something fundamental changes. Baptism, baptism is making pickles. It's making pickles. James Strong, have you ever heard of James Strong? Have you ever heard of Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible? I'm talking about that guy. He gives us the clearest example of the difference between bapto, the dip, and baptizo, the intensified form. And it comes from a Greek poet and physician by the name of Nekendor. You don't have to write that down. Nekendor. Oh, by the way, Nekendor? He dates to 200 years before Christ, third century before Christ. He has this recipe for making pickles. And what he says, ladies, you know this, what he says is you take the vegetable and you first, you dip it into, bapto, you dip it into hot water. Now, why would you take a vegetable and dip it into hot water? What's it do? It solidifies the color, right? We have a word for that when cooking. What is it, ladies? What is it when you dip something in hot water and bring it right back out? Blanching. Bapto is like blanching, where you take, I do this with broccoli all the time because I hate mealy-looking broccoli. But, you know, I put that fresh broccoli in, take it out, and it stays green, right? That's bapto. You first, the vegetable should be dipped bapto into boiling water and then it is baptizo into a vinegar solution you take a cucumber and you baptizo you baptize that into the vinegar solution and what comes out something that is fundamentally different Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution. But the first one, just to dip, is temporary. But baptizo, the second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, brings about a permanent change. Dr. Myron Taylor, one of the... um, premier preachers of the last generation in our brotherhood, a good scholar and a great preacher. Myron Taylor said one time that that baptism is a preformative act. It is an act in which there is a change where something significant occurs. And it's right back to Rabbi Halil's point 
that they're not just a changed man, they are a different man. You following me? Okay. John uh, 13, 26, we have Babto. In there, what we see is uh, Jesus dipping a piece of bread into gravy, into sop, and handing it to somebody saying, this is the one who will betray me. Okay? You know what happens when you take a piece of bread and you dip it into gravy? You know what it comes out? It comes out a piece of bread. Got gravy on it, but it's a piece of bread. The second one, Luke 16, 24. This is... This is the clearest picture that Jesus gives us of the difference between heaven and hell. And it's in a parable about Lazarus and the rich man, right? And the rich man is in constant torment. He asks Father Abraham, hey, have Lazarus at least dip his finger in water and touch my my, uh, tongue so I can get some relief. Well, when Lazarus, if he were to dip his finger into the water, you know what would come out? It would come out a wet finger. Revelation 19, 13, we get a lot of images in there. And this one is the the writer with the white robe, and he dips his robe into blood, and it comes out what? It comes out a bloody robe. It's still a garment. But when you baptizo a person into Christ, you know what you get? You get a new creature there is a change of state there is a change of condition sin is no more they are fundamentally different think about marriage um i think we have a few people in here who have been through a a wedding and uh and understand that you know uh, before you get married there's an awful lot that goes on right you you kind of uh get to know each other, you get to learn things about each other, you decide that this is something that you want to do, right? Uh, there's going to be a proposal, there's going to be an acceptance, and uh, there's going to be a ceremony. Well, you're not really married until you're married. Let me ask you a question. Uh, men, Is there a difference between being married or not married? Give me an amen. Ladies, is there a difference between being married and not married? Amen. Yes, there is a definite difference. You see, baptism marks our uniting our life with Christ. Now, there's a lot that goes on before that. There's a learning period. There's a period where we come to understand and we start thinking about that commitment. There's a lot that goes on before we make that commitment. And friends, there's a lot of changes that are going to take place afterward. Yet, baptism is the benchmark that our Lord gave us to mark our transition into his family. Let's go back to Paul, Romans 6. We'll start at verse 3. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. We have that immersion and emergence. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we no longer live as slaves to sins, but anyone who has died has been freed from sin do you hear what Paul is saying he's saying this this baptism is a metaphor for leaving the old behind so the new can come it is our dying to the sin life but do you see what he says in verse 5 he says that our baptism gives us the hope of resurrection. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Paul is clearly talking about baptism throughout this whole passage. Not only that, you note he's talking to those who are already baptized. Now, you may have heard that Romans 10, 9 and 10, you know, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you'll be saved. And there are people who will say that's, that's all that's necessary. But you have to remember Romans 6 comes before Romans 10. And if you look at the context of the whole book, Paul is writing to introduce himself and his theology to the church in Rome. He's writing to already baptized Christians. So, in context, Romans 10 is written to already baptized Christians. It is not a negation of baptism. It is a reflection of it. It's a reflection of what we see in Romans 6 before we even get to Romans 10. The baptism has has happened and it's assumed in Romans 10. And Romans 10 is not a salvation passage. You read through there. It goes into much more than that. We also know that Paul had a very high view of baptism. Acts twenty two sixteen, 16. Ananias has come to Paul. Paul's had his Damascus Road experience. His eyes have been blinded. He has not been eating maybe three to seven days, but he is fasting. He is waiting. He's praying. He's asking God what's going on. He hears Ananias is going to come, right? So Ananias comes and starts to talk to him. And when Ananias talks with him, he goes to this point. He says in in, uh, Acts 22, 16, he tells Paul, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And what did Paul do? He immediately got up and he was baptized into Christ even before he broke his fast or did anything else. 
That's what Paul was taught about baptism. To wash the sins away and a calling on the name of the Lord. This actually reflects what Peter said in Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name and the power of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of God himself. The gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's you and me. Amen. If Paul did not have a high view of baptism, if Paul did not think that baptism was important and essential, why would he write to the church in Galatia Galatians 3, 26 and 27, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. What's he saying? When you were immersed in him, you put on him. Oh my gosh, is that anything like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? From Acts 2, 38, 39. That is where we put on Christ. Where we become part of his body. I will posit that Paul is saying that we cannot claim to be part of Christ's body if we have not been baptized into him. Do we have to be baptized in order to join a church? It's another question I get. And I got a fun answer for that one. I say yes and no. And of course you're going, what's he mean by yes and no? It's either one or the other, right? Well, that depends on your definition of church. If your definition is the gathering of Christ's body those who have been baptized into Christ and you're becoming part of that body, that family coming into Christ, clothing yourself with Christ, Paul says, absolutely, yes. But if your definition of church is a social club, an organization, a a building, It's just an outward sign of an inward grace. I agree it is an outward sign of an inward grace. But scripture tells us it's a lot more than just that. But if you see it as being baptized into a congregation, into a social organization, then I would say no, because baptism is not an initiating rite. It is the sealing of covenant. It is where we are adopted into God's family. Romans 8.15, if you want to write down a reference for that. Jesus' final words before he ascended into heaven. Jesus said to his closest friends, he said, I want you to go into all the world. And I want you to make disciples of all nations. 
I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them about everything that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? That is why on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 41, those who accepted the message that Peter was giving through the Holy Spirit, those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, friend, if Jesus said, I want you to go make disciples and then march them around the church building ten times, or if he says, I want you to go make disciples and give everyone who comes in a thousand dollars, or I want you to make disciples and make them fast for a week, if Jesus had said that, that is what we would tell people to do. But it wouldn't make any sense. Friends, what Jesus said makes a lot of sense. When he said, I want you to make disciples and I want you to baptize them, makes a huge amount of sense when you understand the history of ritual washings. You understand Jewish proselyte baptism and John's baptism and how Christ is building on their knowledge. It's a beautiful symbol of what has happened. Because baptism symbolizes our death to sin. Our burial with Christ. And our future resurrection with him. It symbolizes cleansing. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says that. Baptism saves us not by the removal of the dirt from the body, but it is the pledge of a good conscience. It's the response. It is our drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is where I stand. And we come into that covenant with God. And he says it's the resurrected Christ that saves. Metaphorically, it's Christ in the waters. Now, friends, if Jesus submitted himself to baptism and his last instructions on earth were about baptism, and if 3,000 were baptized on the first day of his gathering, of his church, and the Holy Spirit made certain that these accounts that we've talked about, both biblical and outside of the Bible, were preserved for us. That means that baptism was very important to Christ. And therefore, it should be important to us. Let me ask you a question. Is obedience... Necessary? Uh, Parents, fathers, mothers, do you expect your kids to obey and do what you tell them to do? Yes or yes? Okay. Um, Bosses, uh, business owners, do you expect your employees to do and to act and to do what you say? Yes or yes? Yes. 
If we understand just in normal social activity that, that baptism, that obedience is necessary, why would we not think that God would not expect us to obey what he tells us to do? We've talked about that word Lord before, right? Curios. Lord means an undisputed possession of a person or a thing. An undisputed owner. It is a slavery word. He is master, we are slave. He is master, we are servant, though he chooses to treat us as children, as heir. And to say Jesus is Lord is a very personal thing. Walter Scott, one of the um, circuit writers back in the early days of our movement, would say that for Jesus to be Lord means I have to hear and believe and confess that. Then I have to be obedient and in in baptize my old self and that I need to live the way that he tells me through his word and through his Holy Spirit, through the Bible. For Jesus to be Lord, for you to use that phrase, is to say that he has total possession of you. And friend, if he has total possession of you, he has a right to tell us how to live. There is some point when I'm having a discussion with somebody about baptism where I'll stop and I'll say, you know, we have spent more time talking about baptism than it takes to actually do it. Why fight it? It's one of the few clear things that Jesus told us to do. And you know what? There are people who were being baptized into Christ almost every week. Some were making an an initial commitment to Christ. Some uh, grew up in a church that didn't honor New Testament baptism by immersion. And now they put their faith in Christ and they're repentant and and they they love God, they love Christ. They, they, They know that, they just weren't ever taught about baptism in the New Testament was by immersion so that it would symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that is where Paul clearly says we come into, we are clothed with Christ. And so as any obedient child of God would do, when they come to clarity of truth, they act on it in honor of the one that is Lord of their life. Now, there are some who've gone through a meaningless ritual in the past, or um, they realized that they were baptized by a parent long before they could put their own faith into Lord Jesus. And so they're responding now because they are making an act of faith just as God desires. And you know what I like about all of those responses? They are exactly the attitude of a person who has made Jesus Christ Lord of their life. Friends, my prayer for every one of you 
is that you will come to know the love of the Lord, that you will put your faith, your belief in him, you'll put your trust in him, and that you will make him Lord of your life. I'll leave you with Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, Ananias' words to Paul. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Father God, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for the consistency of it, for where we see you moving through history as we learn about who you are and who we are in your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you will move among us this morning, that we will truly dedicate ourselves to you as Lord. We thank you for the saving grace that is there in Christ and in the cross. And we thank you, Father, for the life that you give with the Spirit and the life yet to come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.